scripture is Mark, first Mark, verses 4 through 11. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Lord of our God, and we give thanks for it. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Well, this was a fun week to prepare a sermon. Amy, you can stop laughing at me now. I see you. You know, there was a point on Wednesday when I thought, well, I'm going to have to preach something on Sunday. And I, I, I don't know. What do you preach when this happens? And of course, I sat down a day or so later. And I thought, you preach what we preach every week. You preach the gospel. And then I looked at what the texts were. And you got to figure, this baptismal text, I couldn't have hand-selected a better one, except perhaps the one in uh, Luke's gospel where he calls the people coming down to be baptized a brood of vipers, just because at this point in the week, the concept of getting to talk about broods of vipers sounded really, really tempting. But honestly, I think any text that would have come up in the lectionary any gospel text would have worked at some point this week in this set of texts that is so squarely focused on justice. But we find ourselves with John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, predicating so much of this call on that act that we have often forgotten in our days, that act of repentance as a necessary step. What John is asking for is not simply for us to go into a room and pray to God to be forgiven. John is calling us to a public act, to a deliberate act, to leaving 
all that we know and setting out into the wilderness, getting out of our comfort zones and away from all of the things that we have constructed around us as protection, engaging ourselves fully into a place of vulnerability and there to find forgiveness. We talked last week, and weirdly, after last week's sermon, this week's, as hard as this week was, doesn't seem so big a stretch. <laughs> Funny how that works sometimes in the gospel. But we talked last week about how perfection is not required of us by God, nor even perhaps is it desirable in our encounters with God. We don't need to be perfect in order to be loved, in order to find grace, in order to be disciples of the living God. Perfection gets in our way more often than not. And yet, I think it is also worth noting that there is a big difference between doing something imperfectly and consciously committing acts of violence. If we define sin by its literal translation from the Greek, to miss the mark or to miss the target, then we have to acknowledge that there's still a really big difference between not getting a bullseye and not even aiming at the target in the first place. Perfection may not be what God desires in us, but neither does God want grace to become a license for us to do evil. Whether that evil looks like acts of violence or whether it looks like the refusal to stand up against injustice. Grace is not our get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is not that thing that tells us that we're okay no matter what it is that we're doing, no matter how much we are hurting other people, that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, to our own heart's content. Grace is that which makes it worth our while to do the work of repentance, to acknowledge where we've fallen short, where we've screwed up, and to commit ourselves to doing better. And grace is the promise that that second chance, that third chance, will be given. And that's just on God's side. In this story, in the gospel, both John and Jesus were equally aware that their calls to repentance were not simply about human relationships with the divine, but about human life in community with one another. John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the full knowledge that true forgiveness and true reconciliation and healing require accountability and empathy and remorse, and that a community that cannot commit to those principles with each other will collapse into violence. John was a really, really smart guy. There have been a lot of calls since the presidential election for unity and healing, for forgiveness and moving on. Indeed, even in these past few days, I have encountered multiple instances of people who expect that Christian love means giving a pass to those who have done violence. I don't know where or how Christianity substituted the seeking of justice with the concept of a niceness that doesn't ruffle any feathers, but I do know that no one ever clued in either John the Baptist or Jesus himself about that particular shift in theology. 
and all those calls for unity and healing without the simultaneous call for justice and repentance stand necessarily in direct opposition to the gospel which we profess to follow. It is worth noting that John got himself arrested and killed for his work because the calls that he gave to repentance, that lifting up of those who were oppressed and hearing their stories and having the powerful actually acknowledge the ways in which they participated in that oppression would have so completely overturned the balance of power at the time, ran so counter to the ideas of calm, and niceness and comfort that those who were in power needed to remove John, to silence him and any who might come after him, to keep the oppressed firmly in their place in order to maintain the status quo, in order to maintain their own power. That's the repentance to which we are called. And the faith which sent John out into the wilderness, the faith with which he called us all to that repentance is the faith that seeks truth over civility, vulnerability over power, and justice over comfort. The faith that asks us to repent is the faith that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable, in the words of Dorothy Day but not only afflicts the comfortable, but afflicts them with the fallout of their own actions and their own silences. The faith to which John called us, the faith which we follow in the person of Jesus is still the very faith that rejects the emptiness of unrepentant niceness and forgiveness without consequence. In what has become since a statement of Incredible irony. The author J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter series noted that to commit acts of violence is to tear apart one's soul. Now, in the book, she explicitly said that murder tears the soul. But since the books repeatedly lump the acts of murder and enslavement and torture together as equally unforgivable and meriting the same consequences, I'm going to go ahead and suggest that she meant all actions of human violence are equally soul-tearing. Did I mention the irony effect of this? And in this statement, unlike so much else that she has recently said, I do think she is right. The damage that we inflict upon others damages us. It tears us apart within our very selves and from our communities. She notes that the only way to repair that damage, the only way to heal a soul torn by its own violence is to feel remorse, to feel within our own beings the harms that we have done to another. The only way to heal is to have compassion, literally to feel with, to feel the pain of another within our own self a concept Rowling herself would do well to embody with her dealings with trans folk. Just had to say that. Now, she doesn't use these exact words, but Rowling's concept of healing is remarkably like the gospel's insistence upon repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
It is a willingness to take responsibility, not only in words, but down into the very core of our beings for the violence and harms that we have caused, or even the ones that we have allowed to happen before us without our explicit objection. And not only to take responsibility, but to repent before those whom we have harmed in public and deliberate acts, to name and feel and own the deep and lasting damage that our violence or our silence before it have effected on real people who are supposed to be our neighbors. Because we can't ever simply say that we were following orders. We can't ever simply say that we didn't know. We can only say that we made a choice not to see. The acts of terror and violence this week happened on the day of Epiphany. Did you all notice that? And in that very truth, we must hear our call. The Feast of the Epiphany marks the arrival of the Magi to honor the Christ Child. It is a day and a season of illumination, of revelation. That's literally what the word means, that which is revealed. And that which allows us to see what is right before us. For we remember, those of us who know this story from Matthew's Gospel, the Magi expected to find the baby in Jerusalem, to find the baby in the king's palace. Isn't that where you find a baby king, after all? The Magi, like any humans, allowed their human understandings and perceptions to send them badly off course. We can all have a whole lot of empathy with that one, can't we? Their encounter with the Christ child broke them back open. Showed before them the truths that they had not yet understood, not yet been willing to see. The power that Herod would not willingly give up. And the violence that he would be willing to commit in that process. Epiphany is that moment in our liturgical year when we set aside our understandings of the world as it is and allow our experiences of the Christ child, the reality in our lives of God-made flesh, to break us open to all that we had refused to acknowledge before. This season of illumination throws the world around us into stark relief, changes our perspectives, holds up a mirror before us, and demands our accountability, demands that we take a long, good, honest, vulnerable look at ourselves, at our actions, at our refusals to act, and at the consequences of all of our deeds done and undone. The events of this week are a powerful mirror held up on the very day of Epiphany, setting before us the sins of this nation and of this society. And we are called, as surely as if John the Baptist's voice rang among us, to go out into the wilderness, step foot in all of the places that we are afraid to travel, to step willingly into our vulnerability and to repent. Because the actions of those who committed violence out of fear simply of losing their power are a reflection 
of our unwillingness to believe what our marginalized neighbors have long been begging us to hear, that our nation has from its beginning been one that upholds the power of whiteness and maleness and Christian nationalism with tremendous violence and with utter impunity. The events of this week show us with a terrifying clarity that white nationalists can plan and organize an insurrection. They had shirts printed. This was not an impromptu gathering with little to no resistance. That white nationalists can occupy the locations of power and authority in this nation and walk out again, most of them without even a scratch, and that they know it that they are willing to flaunt it in our faces because they see, even if we refuse to, that this is indeed who we are. The events of this week force us to look at a nation that our neighbors of color have long described to us, have long begged us to acknowledge and to repent of our participation in it, to repent of the ways that we have refused to acknowledge racism, to repent of the myriad excuses that we make for police brutality, to repent of the silence that keeps us comfortable in our whiteness or in our gender or our sexuality or our citizenship or our Christianity. The events of this week show us the stark reality that marginalized people cannot express their grief and pain at their oppression, cannot demand justice when they have been wronged, but that white people who simply do not want to share power, whose main purpose is to demonstrate to everyone watching just how much they can do and get away with, just how dangerous they are willing to be for the sake of keeping themselves on top. The events of this week show us exactly who we are, even as our faith reminds us in this very moment, in this epiphany, illumination, who it is that we are called to be. Are we listening? It will feel like a wilderness journey. As we venture out of the comforts of our own known locations, out of the safety of our own privileged experiences, and into the insecurity where so many of our neighbors are forced to live, whether they like it or not. It is a journey that we must make with intention, willing to hear with remorse and engage with responsibility as we step closer to the baptismal waters to which we have been called. Because throughout it all, the good news remains as clearly, as loudly as it did when John the Baptist first stood on the banks of the Jordan. The good news remains even in the horrors of an insurrection, even in the wake of violence and terror. There is still a voice in the wilderness of one crying out to prepare a way, even here, even now, for our God. And he may not be dressed in camel's hair in this day and age. Her diet may not consist of sticky insects. Kind of hope it doesn't. But they still call. And they still hope that we will respond, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, proclaiming a muddy and cold and uncomfortable accounting that will begin the process of mending the damage that violence and white supremacist patriarchy have done to our souls, both individually and as a society. Proclaiming 
that the vows that we made in our own waters still hold us, still call us to be more than we are, still offer us the promises of grace in the face of widespread sin. The good news is that the illumination of the epiphany, the clarity we gain from our encounter with the incarnate God remains before us, beckoning us to look closely, to look beyond our own comfort, knowing that even in the unbearable clarity of revelation, we are encouraged and held by the one in whom we find new understandings. The good news is that there is a way to heal, a way to undo the damage that has torn our souls in the wake of these episodes of human violence, the rending of the body of Christ and the bonds of our communal being, and that the way is not through niceness and civility that put a pretty facade on evil, but through the mountain-lowering, valley-smoothing, earth-shaking acts of repentance and compassion and justice that are made possible by grace. This week has shown us who we truly are, if we are willing to look and see and understand. And it has offered us as well the opportunity to participate in healing, to repent of the damage we have done, or at least the damage that we have not prevented, and to seek in humility and love to carve a new path, to prepare a new way for our God. This has been a week that calls us anew into the wilderness. And I know none of us really want to have to go out there. But there's one who cries out to you, who cries out to me, who cries out to our community, and who reassures us that there is a path forward into the waters and that we may hear anew the voice that speaks grace as we emerge from those very waters of repentance, and we will hear the renewing promise that we are God's beloved children, in whom God has reason to be well pleased. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>